Hello and welcome to Primal Anarchy Podcast, episode 20. It is June 11th, 2019. I'm your host, Kevin Tucker. Uh, and I uh, was thinking I should at least do one podcast a month here, and I am one day short of a month. So here we go. Maybe this is a new trend. Uh, I do want to see if I can actually get to at least two episodes a month. I'm trying to remind myself to do the podcast a bit more regularly. And I have some ideas for kind of like mini-series on the podcast to, to discuss things like basics of primal anarchy, um, or even just the details of it. Uh, and I'd really like to start doing interviews on the podcast as well. Uh, I'm just not that good at technology, so I haven't taken the time to figure out how to translate that really well yet. Uh, but I'm going to. So hopefully I'll be getting up to more podcasts more regularly, uh, but also, I'm in my deep research and writing stage right now, as well as working on stuff for Wild Resistance number seven, interviews and things like that. Um, so it means that I've got a lot of really random stuff I'm coming across that I would typically like to share, and uh, probably a considerable number of rage spirals, good old-fashioned rage spirals, uh, to go with that. So... Maybe. We'll see. I don't, I don't like to promise things that I don't necessarily know I'll deliver. I tend to forget about doing podcasts and also I uh, have been doing a number of interviews. Uh, not as much recently, but I got a bunch of more that I'm lining up. And when I do interviews, I tend to forget that I haven't done my own podcast. Uh, I do want to plug again the interview I had with James Gesso. That's Adventures Through the Mind podcast. And so that's a podcast and then it's also on YouTube as well. Uh, that was covering cold personality and ayahuasca. Uh, and James Gesso does come from the psychedelics community, whatever you want to call it, uh, as adventures through the mind, the name of it might entail. Uh, so that, that interview, I'm, I'm really, really happy with that one. I'm, I'm happy with all the ones that have come out recently and everything, but that one in particular, if you like this podcast, if you like what I have to say, you're definitely going to want to listen to that. And I'm going to go ahead and plug uh, my books as well. Gathered Remains, which came out in 2018. Call of Personality came out in 2019. Uh, KevinTucker.org has all the information. If you go to this website, PrimalAnarchy.org, it has all of that as well and links for where to get the books. But if you're interested at all in the podcast, I can go ahead and tell you that my books are better. Uh, I think about them ahead of time. I don't come into it with no notes. I research them meticulously and I take time when I think about it. Uh, I don't just turn on the microphone and start talking. Uh, so yeah, speaking of that, so I did the, I did the series on my book recommendations. If you're new to this podcast, uh, those, those I've been recommending a good bit lately. And the list for the books that were recommended in all three episodes are in the descriptions on primalarchy.org as well. Um, I am kicking around the idea again, of doing a uh, primer of sorts. Uh, and I'd put out the question. I'm interested in getting more feedback. And obviously anybody on here could write me as well. Uh, you can write to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Uh, and let me know what you think. Uh, the ideas that I have would be either writing something that was more like an overview, uh, introductory kind of polemic with resources, or something that was going to be very in-depth, just walking through uh, all the aspects of, of Primal Anarchy in really great detail. I 
have to say that the in-depth one uh, would get pushed down very quickly on the list of books that I'm already working on. Uh, and I'm working, again, on my, my main book of Gods and Country, which deals with missionaries and the origins of religion, uh, missionaries and agents of colonialism. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple other books that I've got that are going to be going up in that list as well pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to necessarily get into all that right now. But I just will say that if I was going to write something that was a bit more polemic, I think I can do it faster, uh, and I'd probably be able to squeeze it in a little bit easier. Um, so uh, I'm interested in seeing what people would like. Uh, the, the other thing, too, about the, the really in-depth one is that I cover a lot of this stuff already. Um, and if you if you want to look at my books in particular and how I approach it, so For Wildness and Anarchy is more of a general overview. It's got some like more specific stuff in it as well. Um, but then by the time we get to Gather Remains, like this is this is much deeper levels of critique, uh, and also just like the the writing change. So the book, the essays in For Wildness and Anarchy are from 2000 to 2010. Um, everything from Gathered Remains was from I think the earliest thing is 2014, and then 2018 being the last thing that was in there, and then Cole, which came out this year, was written at the very end of last year. Um, and all those things are much more like in depth and deep dive and more heavily researched. And just even as my writing style has changed or my approach as writer has changed, uh, it deals with things at a much deeper level. So there will be aspects of a very in depth um, overview kind of piece or, or introductory or just, just look at primal anarchy that are going to be redundant with things that I've already written, which is kind of hard for me, but. I understand wanting to have it all in one place and organized in a better way. Uh, but the overview could still be in depth, uh, but it wouldn't be written in the same kind of style. It wouldn't, it would have the resources, but not the citations. Um, I, I think I could do that quicker. So I'm just kind of gauging interest on it. Um, it's, I, I get this request a lot. So that's kind of the reason that it, it keeps coming back up. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that, if it is something people feel is necessary, that I can provide it. I've had a couple people ask about like a, a very, very short version, uh, like 20, 30 pages or something like that. Um, short and I don't always get along. And there's a kind of a lot of ground to cover if I wanted to make it a primer. Just realistically, I think that like, you know, when I'm thinking a short overview kind of thing, it's probably going to be one, 200 pages or something like that. Um, so I'm interested in getting people's opinions, people's takes. But I do think that what I'll probably end up doing will be, as I as I kind of lay it out and work through it, um, I will do a podcast series going into that and kind of covering it all. Uh, not just reading it, but just kind of covering the same topics and just rolling with it that way. And if you're listening to the podcast, that's probably good news. So uh, everybody else, you might just say, fuck them. I don't know. But whatever it is, let me know. Let me know your opinions. Let me get your feedback. I appreciate it greatly. And any feedback at all, I appreciate it. If there's anything you ever want me to read on the air, uh, I do get letters. I just typically don't read them unless I've been made aware that I should. Um, so, yeah, you can send that to blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, let me know if I'm supposed to read it and respond to it on the air. 
But speaking of books, I am very, 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 very close to having For Wild and Anarchy the second revised and expanded edition out, or I'm sorry, sent to the printer. Uh, I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter campaign or some kind of GoFundMe kind of thing. Um, I would like to think by the end of this week I might be able to get that going. Uh, I sent off for estimates and everything from the printer, so there's a good chance that it could come sooner than later. And also I'm really hoping that the Kickstarter, whatever the funding campaign, the funding, the fundraiser does considerably better um, than just covering this book alone. Uh, Black and Green is pretty considerable debt and I'd really like to wear that down. So I'm also thinking about other things I can add into it, other kind of, uh, you know, reprinting shirts or whatever, whatever I can do to, to make things available or make things more enticing to give donations or to help out. Uh, I'll, let me know what you're interested in seeing and I'll do my best to get that going uh, because I would really like to chisel it down and I'm really eager to get this book out as well. Uh, I ended up cutting a couple of essays. There's, there's some stuff in there that, you know, I, I, I had the last episode talking about my habits as a writer and some of the things I look for as an editor and I was doing all that because I was going through my own stuff from, you know, 2000 to 2010. Uh, and looking through my old stuff makes it really easy for me to uh, lay out what kinds of things I'm looking for and being very critical of myself. Uh, and I, I ended up making a lot of edits. This book, the second edition of this book is almost, in some ways, almost unrecognizable from the first uh, considerably, considerably better. Uh, but yeah, getting rid of a couple of things that I just thought were, you know, I was grinding my teeth a little too much reading them. Uh, and then adding a couple of things back in, move an essay, anarchy and anthropology, uh, that was in species trader that's in there now. And then I added an essay, or I'm sorry, an interview I did with the fifth column from 2015, uh, hit where it hurts, but in the meantime, which is a response that I'd written to Ted Kaczynski's Hit Where It Hurts that was in Green Anarchy from 2003 or 2004. And then a previously unpublished essay, which is called Understanding Collapse, which lays lays out a lot more uh, about the ideas of collapse and collapse theory and things like that. Uh, kind of background to stuff that ended up being in these actual essays. And there's a lot I was working on at the time, uh, particularly from 2002 on, I started working on this book called Catalyst. I was originally thinking I might stick bits of Catalyst, because I did write a good bit of that, um, in For Wilds and Anarchy. But honestly, it's just a lot of work. And it's there's still stuff, I like the, the notes I have and everything like that. I mean, there's, there's good stuff in there. Um, and I do kind of pillage it a little bit here and there in some of the other writings I've done. And some of those ideas have gone on to be in essays that are in Gathered Remains and Cold Personality and of Gods and Country. Uh, so I just don't like to be redundant. Uh, and I don't want to go through and spend a bunch of time editing something that could potentially become redundant or is still feels incomplete. Or, you know, it honestly just gets to the point where I'm reading through it. I'm like, I should just rewrite this whole thing. Which is a very real point and a point I'd hit a number of times with some of the stuff with for Wildness and Anarchy. Uh, but whittled that down uh, considerably and made a number of changes. So I think this is a much better book. And like I said, it's 
there are deeper aspects of it. There are some of the essays that that do give more of a look into things. But for the for the most part, if you're looking for, you know, starting from zero, or just just curiosity, just want to covering a lot of ground, this book definitely definitely does that. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of interest for it. So I'm just gonna do my best to keep it and make it the best version of itself that it should be. And I am happy with this. So I will read the introduction I wrote to the second edition here. For Wildness and Anarchy. Over time, critiques deepen. Terms can be amended and expanded upon. When you're dealing with something as involved and far-reaching as civilization, there are a lot of moving pieces. That's why it has always been important for me to put what I'm fighting for front and center. Wildness and Anarchy. The title ought to make it clear that this is the baseline of this book and also the foundation of all my work that has come since. Wildness is intently different from wilderness. Like primal anarchy, it's flowing reality, one that has shaped who we are as a social animal. It's not about a place and time, it's not a location. It's the wild spirit of the world. Wildness, like primal anarchy, is also something better understood in complexity than strictly defined. The more we try to tamp it down into simple definitions, the more we are going to necessarily reduce it to a concept to box up. Steps that help it become a plaything for marketers and gurus. For everything civilization has thrown at or torn from this world, it is the persistence of the wild, the untamable aspects of our primal anarchy, which inspire me. The world that we live in, the world that civilization has carved into the Earth's flesh, that technology accelerates, that colonization forces into its grasp, that warfare decimates and divides, remains under assault. The path that we have been set upon through domestication, the narratives of progress that have long been whispered into our ears and plastered before our eyes, all this is to conceal that part of ourselves that begs for wildness. It is meant to cover up our need for community and our visceral distaste for authority. Civilization is a history of failed attempts to bury our hunger for a life without work, without sales pitches for meaning and purpose. We reach for perfection and miss that the most egalitarian and sustainable societies that have ever existed, those of nomadic hunter-gatherers, are written into our bones and minds. We have been sold substitutions for life piecemeal. We work for them. We pay for them. We oppose them upon others and pat ourselves on the back when we feel we have succeeded. We see our story as a linear path. Perpetual conquest becomes an accepted part of our reality. Dissecting that narrative is the core of this book. The essays can remind us of the realities of civilization that we live in, or possibly awakening us to them for the first time. When the narratives of domestication work, then a living history can be buried in plain sight. We live within the remnants of a world under attack, surrounded by monuments preemptively proclaiming victory in an often one-sided battle. The stories we are told are a patchwork of bravado and hubris. When you pull the strings, all of it comes undone. My goal is to strip civilization of its clothes, to expose it. The essays in this book, written between 2000 and 2010, take on a number of different voices and approaches with that, moment, with that momentum. Some feel raw, others more refined. Taken as a whole, they cover this much of the span of an anti-civilization critique. From here, it unfurls in many directions. There is no aspect of civilization that should be spared of shredding its mythology and attacking its ongoing processes. The, following of the flow of power remains tethered to a finite earth. The systems in place to keep that power moving morph in form and intensity but they follow the same patterns that civilization always has. History doesn't repeat itself. The old wounds just remain open. And the world we face now is in many ways cataclysmically, cataclysmically worse. 
None of the warnings were heeded. Nothing was learned from the mistakes of the past. There have been moments where it felt like a reckoning was coming, when we were almost going to address climate change and endemic die-offs, but those efforts were diluted into symbolic policy proposals. Our world is on fire, flooding in regions, parched and on fire in others. Wars continue unabated as we again teeter closer to nuclear war. Children continue to suffer the worst of it all. For those who have known what to look for, there is no satisfaction in being right. There is no moment where a prediction coming true feels at all hopeful or satisfying. The point was never to prophetically portray what was to come, but to voice a clarion call that we have power and agency. We can do something about this. The world has always fought civilization. The world is struggling. The wild remains. That's why I put it up what I'm for up front. It's not enough to be a critic. It's not enough to hope that some catalog of decline will find its place amongst our impending ruins. It's never enough to just take in all the destruction and watch it unfold. We are still here. The earth is still here. Realizing our place in this world guarantees nothing. Feeling our part both in the destruction of life and perseverance of it offers no safety net, no parachute, no bailout, and no bug-out bag. But it gives us a chance to feel that life, to struggle alongside it, to fight back. It is vital to never lose sight of what is at stake, at what is being lost and destroyed in this world. Our home, our planet, our lives, the lives of those we know and those we'll never know. It is my goal to expose the foundations of civilization. In doing so, we can also find our own grounding in this world. Hands in the soil, feet on the earth. Unearthing the realities of power of civilization should make you feel. And feeling is what leads to action. Not for ideologies, not for philosophies, but for the wild spirit of the world that beckons. For wildness, for anarchy, we have nothing promised to us in this life. Yet this life carries on, impatiently awaiting our return. One way or another, we are agents of this, in this world on fire. How will you use yours? If you've encountered the first edition of this book, which came out in 2010, then you might notice considerable changes for this massively revised edition. When I first compiled these essays, many of which had been printed and distributed thousands of times, I wanted to remain true to how they had originally been presented. I didn't change them much. In hindsight, not making many necessary corrections or ironing out difficult and rough passages was a mistake, hence this version. Some essays in the original version didn't age as well, so they were removed and others were updated as were necessary. A few new ones have been included along with an interview I did with the fifth column from 2015, which should round out the insights in this book. I wish a number of topics in this book would have long lost relevance over time, but sadly they have not. Along with the resurgence in fascism, obliquely unaware socialism is also on the rise. Internet culture has given Ted Kaczynski, as an icon and as an ideologue, a new audience. I'm far less forgiving of his quirks now than I was in 2005. Nearly everything written about technology here was written before social media and cell phones became the predominant means of communication and, worse, interaction with the world. My references to TV seem almost quaint in comparison, but the critiques only become more potent. There are many aspects of this book that I would have approached differently now. It's clear where I've grown as a writer and developed as the critiques unfold. I've spent plenty of time elaborating a more developed and nuanced analysis of civilization in my recent books, Gathered Remains and Cold Personality, as well as a number of other books currently in the works. That conversation manifests in the page of Wild Resistance, a journal of primal anarchy, which I founded in 2015 as Black and Green Review. If any of this is of interest, I assure you that all of those projects and books will be too. All told, I went to lengths to make sure that the essays in this book are the best versions they could be. I owe a great thanks to Jessica Carew-Craft for her commitment to helping me through the elaborate process. 
The extent to which this reads smoother is largely due to her watchful eye and guidance. There are some corrections that I was eager to make. For years, I have been making the effort to say gather hunter over hunter gather, a well-intentioned move that was intending to correct male biases, but ultimately negates the role that hunting plays within hunter-gatherer societies, as well as the role women play in hunting and fishing, and the importance of meat, fish, and fowl hold that uh, meat, fish, and fowl hold within these societies. In attempting to flip the perspective, I fear that I had unfortunately upheld the imposed tiered hierarchies we've already imposed upon indigenous societies. That's an error I don't take lightly. Around 2004, I started talking about primal anarchy. In the time since, I've increasingly moved away from the term anarcho-primitivism towards an embrace of primal anarchy on its own. There are a number of reasons for this, elaborated in the, elaborated in the essay To the Captives from Wild Resistance Number 6. They include reckoning with the fact that I wasn't using the word primitive without quotes or clarifiers for well over a decade already, but also the fact that primitivism as a term lack any real reference point other than historical. I have long felt that the anarcho-primitivist critique had outgrown its questioning stage and that we have found enough discernible answers and roots to assert ourselves more clearly. Primal anarchy, in this light, is less about what had happened, but what is happening. The critique isn't about a fall from grace, but a realization that we were born to be nomadic hunter-gatherers. The narrative of domestication has always required a notion of social evolution, an effort to make concrete the idea that we have passed the point of no return, to make us feel like we collectively made a choice and that civilization won. It hasn't. It won't. Civilization has always been resisted. Always. At no point did anyone in any society ever simply just accept the narrative and carry on. We adapted considerably too much. We take part in the destruction of our home, our earth, and all life upon it. But it has always been within our grasp to change that. We may be the last to realize this, but it doesn't change our reality. Undoubtedly, where we are, we are where we are now. The world, as we see it and feel it, remains in a state of complete and utter freefall. Once we begin to undermine those narratives, once we begin to see beyond them, and then maybe, just maybe, we'll begin to see that others have survived civilization. Despite everything that civilization has done to this world, I'm hoping the Earth is far more adaptive than we have been. So that is the introduction to the second edition of For Wildness and Anarchy, which, uh, like I said, I think the funding campaign should hopefully be up later this week or early next week. Uh, and then uh, as soon as that gets going, as soon as the funds get pulled up, it'll go to the printer. Uh, 336 pages, and it's got some amazing cover art. Uh, Ellie Jo Gill, uh, she did the, uh, it's, it's actually, it is the benefit poster, um, that we did for the Unistotin uh, benefit. Um, I, I don't know. End of last year? I lose track of time pretty easily. Uh, but that's awesome. The art is awesome. I'm really stoked about that. I think the cover is amazing. And adding to the list of amazing artists I've been fortunate enough to work with uh, for covers. So, uh, real quick, I know I've recommended this book a couple times now. Uh, How to Hide an Empire from Daniel Emmerwar is one of those books that uh, with the research I'm doing and everything like that it can be really hard for me to get other books in but sometimes you find books that just have to be read uh, and this one is really excellent if you want to try and understand particularly uh, the period from like 1900 to I guess 1960 I think that would probably be the main period covered in the book it does go back considerably further and forward up to the present um, but in terms of understanding 
the differences between colonialism and imperialism and the way that empire was approached and also not acknowledged at all uh, by Americans or, or within the American mindset or the American idea of itself uh, is pointed out by what he calls the logo map, which is just the idea of people have America as the lower 48. And uh, I think it's at the end of the Second World War, I think it was, uh, American Empire had expanded so much ground that a third of its landmass was off the was beyond the lower forty eight, uh, and he really lays it out and talks about it a lot about colonialism and you know even getting into guano a considerable amount, and then talking about the shift in uh, resource extraction methods and technologies uh, and how that impacts colonialism and how that impacts the idea of empire as owning grounds versus developing what he calls the pointillist empire, which is what we have now where the Americas have, I'm sorry, where America has, I think eight or 900 military bases throughout the world. And it's just like all these following the same kind of paths of power. And it's, it's in some ways it really kind of matches well with uh, James Bridle's new dark age, which I've talked a bit about on the book as well uh, about technology, really following these old colonial maps. Um, but yeah, so this book, strongly recommend. So I do want to read a little bit here from the book, just a, a little section, just to give a kind of an idea about, about what it was like. Uh, and so this section is the end of talking about the Second World War. Um, and uh, Japan had taken over large swaths of U.S. and European colonies uh, in during World War II. Uh, and the, the strategy that was used, Douglas, Douglas MacArthur kind of like jumping back behind the line and bringing it forward, uh, really just built up all these kind of like colonial insanity. And you saw that all over uh, not fully established parts or not fully uh, recognized parts of the American empire at the time. And in, even looking at like uh, the Alouettes in, off of Alaska, this indigenous society up there, uh, they were being interned during World War II. It doesn't get talked about very much, but they, you know, they were being actively put on guard against uh, Russia, against Japan, and then end up being interned as well. Uh, so, in this section, he's talking about the the wars that happened in the Philippines and how the Second World War had impacted and the battles that were being fought in the Philippines and how that really didn't even register on the American mind in terms of the Philippines being a U.S. territory at that time. So I think the story really kind of sums that up. Oscar Villadolid, a boy at the time, remembers a familiar scene from the aftermath of Manila's liberation. A GI came down his street handing out cigarettes and Hershey bars. Speaking slowly, he asked Villadolid's name. When Villadolid replied in easy English, their soldier was startled. How'd you learn American, he asked. Villadolid explained that when the United States colonized the Philippines, it had instituted English in the schools. The only com this only compounded the GI's confusion. He did not even know that America had a colony here in the Philippines, Villadolid marveled. Take a moment and let that sink in. This was a soldier who had taken a long journey across the Pacific. He had been briefed on his mission, shown maps, told where to go and whom to shoot. Yet at no point had it dawned on him that he was preparing to save a U.S. colony and that the people he would encounter there were, just like him, U.S. nationals. He thought he was invading a foreign country. So, yeah, there's a lot in this book that is really, really good. But um, the the chapter in there called Synthetica is 
excellent. It's like there's there's chapters I find all the time. I'm like, you, you, if you're just going to read a chapter of this book, this would be the one. Uh, Synthetica is really important, particularly for me, especially because it comes into talking about the rubber trade, which, of course, I talk about in Cold Personality and I've brought on the podcast before. Uh, there was a resurgence of old colonial ties with rubber plantations and rubber tappers around World War II. And you realize just how much warfare determines civilization's course and how much colonialism determines warfare. Uh, what ended up happening is that when Japan was annexing U.S. and British and uh, European territories during World War II and it had cut off access to them, it meant that it had cut off access to the resources that had come from those regions. And war disrupted this all around. That's why uh, the Nazis invented rayon during World War II because they lost access to silk. Uh, so what, what ended up happening was is that all these territories have been annexed because the rubber plantations had been switched to from wild rubber uh, trees and vines in the Amazon and the Congo to uh, Asian plantations around 1914-1915. But when they lost access to those rubber plantations uh, in World War II, then they tried to kick back up the old rubber trade. That's why there's a little bit of a blip about it. And then the Nazis and Americans were racing to see who could synthesize uh, rubber most efficiently. And it ended up being the United States. Uh, So when rubber kind of comes up and down and goes off the map again, you can see how these old colonial lines and the shifting relationship of of colonialism and capitalism and imperialism, they're really just super opportunistic. And he talks about it throughout in this, this entire book, uh, technological problems, technological solutions. And that determined the nature of empire, uh, which is really, really good. Uh, and it's again, you know, fits really well with the prime monarchist Anarcho Primavist kind of critique uh, and trying to understand how power shifts. And it's one of the things that tends to go missing if you're just approaching all this from just like a strictly anti-capitalist kind of perspective. All these things come from somewhere. And all civilizations run off of resources and all civilizations run off of need to conquer and colonize to keep feeding uh, this mathematical impossibility, which is the idea of having infinite growth on a finite planet. Uh, it's the nature of civilization in a nutshell. is just this impossible scenario where constant growth needs to exist. Uh, new input needs to come in all the time. Uh, so a lot of that gets covered in the book. And I think, and you know, I'm sure in very kind of like lateral ways, and you know, I'm not assuming or presuming in any way or thinking that, uh, the author is secretly an Erica Primavist or anything like that, nothing of the sort. But this comes back to that idea that the more you pull any of these threads of civilization, uh, the more the entirety of it kind of comes undone. Uh, and looking at the history of empire and the span of empire and how empires spread and why they spread is a really good starting point to figure that out. Um, so I mentioned that, and I know I've mentioned Greg Grandin's End of the Myth, which I think fits in with this very well. And then both of these books play very, very well with, uh, Facing West, which is an older book, uh, but also ties in about the idea of expansion borders and frontiers predominantly in the 19th and 20th centuries, which is where 
you know, we've really set the table for where things come. Uh, the main thing I wanted to get to tonight, though, is looking at these critiques and talking to people about them more and talking about doing primers and talking about doing things like this uh, and even talking about uh, fascism with other people. I've, I've gotten this sense for a while and it's been in kind of like primers and FAQs that I've done for a considerable amount of time now where I get this sense from people that they think that uh, an anti-civ critique or, or primal anarchist critique or anarcho-primitivist critique is lacking because it has no critiques of, uh, or it hadn't fully articulated critiques of capitalism in the same way that, you know, naturally uh, socialists or communists or anarcho-socialists or anarcho-communists had. Uh, and a, a part of that really is just because, you know, the, the, the building of this critique, I mean, even if they're decades old, it still is covering a lot of ground. There's still a lot of ground to cover and the, the, most obvious thing was going to always be covering the areas that, you know, for the most part, leftists and even post leftists hadn't been covering, and especially in ultra left had been dipping into, uh, but not laying out as much as we had. Uh, and I, I feel like, particularly with the Journal with Wild Resistance, we've been doing a better job at filling in those gaps, and John's been doing a lot of historical pieces for a while now. Uh, and you know, just having other people who are coming in and bringing in uh, different aspects of the critiques. Uh, but as fascism is on the rise, it's it's natural that this is something that gets brought up. And it's something I'm going to be working on uh, for a, a collection that it probably won't be out until next year. Uh, and I probably won't have the piece done. Well, I know I won't have the piece done for a while. But I mean, fascism is something obviously we, we're against. It's something that we come up against as much as anybody else, but there are particular brands of eco-fascism that I don't feel lateral with, and I know this is not a universal for green anarchists at this point, which is pretty fucking sad, uh, but naturally if we're against civilization, we're against any kind of power, any kind of political power, we're anti-fascist. Uh, but these tendencies do arise, and I think that really brings out the importance of the critique and the importance of really expanding it and covering all these other grounds and covering all these other periods and covering all these things that I suppose hadn't been as articulated, but I guess we had just taken for granted that being an anarchist presumed a number of things. Uh, you can't, you can't do that anymore. The uh, far right, the alt right have discovered anarcho capitalism and they, and national anarchism. And they have made those aspects of anarchism, which were, very very minor into you know kind of a 4chan reddit breeding ground for youtube grifters and things like that uh so there are aspects of anarchism uh in in all regards but even particularly in eco not not green anarchism but you know eco-fascist ideas and national anarchism to kind of bond and to kind of create this this ridiculous sense of traditionalism uh that is at the core of the all right delusions and i always think too and i, I think i brought it up and yeah i did bring it up in the book recommendations i always think of john gray's al-qaeda and what it means to be modern which i think is really good and really important all these traditionalist kind of arguments that arise in a technological setting uh they always kind of want to play up this idea of being 
you know, authentic. And Al-Qaeda and ISIS were, of course, very, very strong proponents of this. But you see this amongst Western chauvinist fascists that are coming up now. And we can look at the Proud Boys. We can look at Wolves of Vinland and groups like that. But even even neo-Nazis use a lot of these kind of arguments. And one example would be Julius Evola and talking about the revolt against the modern world. Uh, they they play on these traditionalist ideas and then just the the disgusting side of it is just turning it back onto this narrative of progress or this narrative of social evolution, which creates kind of like a mythic past of saying, this is why we deserve to be the powerful ones in this situation. This is how we rose to power. And this is our sense of home and our sense of homeland. And I mean, it, it, it's kind of dripping with crazy. I'm doing a very, very, very topical kind of overview of any of that at best right now. But it's it's kind of hard to like just mention it without even getting into some of the details because the ideas these people have are fucking nuts. There's crazy like white supremacist, Western chauvinist fantasies about conquest within uh, the Americas and... Uh, you can look at South Africa and Australia. All these places, movements exist. It's just, it's crazy. It's just very, very crazy. But yeah, it's based on this merger of kind of like a traditionalist ethos and then a very technological imperative and technological impulse. And uh, I'm reading through Shane Burley's Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Uh, talking with Shane a good bit as well. Uh, and I, I like this book he, he points out he's talking about the all right he's talking about newer forms of fascism and they rely more on that kind of narrative and it's you know they're they're more pathetic and it doesn't necessarily even need a lot of organization uh but technology really fills in the gaps for a lot of the ideology that would otherwise have to exist for fascist movements and fascist movements today are necessarily going to be different from fascist movements before not because they don't they want to be different but because of the nature of how power lies um and and how they're going to get these kinds of messages across uh and all that but it you know it it does get mentioned in this book and i think it's a really important point is it just comes down to technology and adapting to the social media and adapting to uh, this always on kind of culture of just knee-jerk reactionism and any kind of looking at any kind of assertion against domination or any kind of assertion against uh, systemic violence or systemic inequality as being this ground of being like, well, you're just, you know, you're the snowflake or whatever and whatever. I don't have to listen to you, but I've earned my place in society and I don't see that white privilege is a thing. And I'm honestly upset about the fact that it isn't. So here we're going to assert ourselves and always getting to play the victim. Uh, to build up fascist movements for people who already have positions of power or already have, you know, relative social equality, or I'm sorry, not equality, but social social uh, equity and social power uh, within the society, which is what happens with, with white people in America. It's white privilege. Um, so I've been getting more questions about that as well, and I've been talking about it a little bit, uh, and I, I don't know if maybe it just doesn't get voice enough, but I mean, you know, speaking for editors of Wild Resistance, speaking for myself, speaking for John, naturally we're anti-fascist. We're extremely anti-racist. We don't want 
anything to do with any of these systems that civilization has created and any of these systems of classification that system that that civilization has created i mean down to the title of my old journal species trader like even the idea of trying to distinguish humans as a totally separate entity and giving us the power to dictate uh the layering and the categorization of the rest of the world is to me insane uh on a living planet obviously we've gotten to these positions but uh it's it's a huge part of the problem and how we got here and how we get out of this situation uh but yeah i mean there's there's no part and there's no role or there's nothing within uh these critiques that give really any room for this kind of racist nationalist xenophobic any any of this bullshit any of this nonsense uh so we have nothing to do with it but i don't no, I don't know if people were thinking for some reason that meant we just don't care about it, we just weren't dealing with it enough, or maybe that left the door open for people to think uh, maybe we'd be less sympathetic to critiques of whiteness, critiques of toxic, toxic masculinity or anything like it, but that is definitely not the case, and I feel like that's come up more uh, recently than it has in quite a while. Uh, people just genuinely wondering, like, well, do I think that whiteness is an issue when you're comparing with civilization? So the thing that naturally comes to mind is Ted Kaczynski's Ship of Fools, uh, which is his take on, you know, a very old kind of story and the idea of all these people on a ship and they're all arguing about what's the most important thing, what's the most imminent threat, not seeing the icebergs, and they're going to crash and that and die. Uh, because they're too busy bickering. And his idea, and I mean, this this is a dogmatic tool. It's, a, it's used by many people. It's used in many situations. And anybody can kind of play this game. It's like if you're not looking at the one biggest issue, then what's going to happen? And the important thing that I remember about Ted, and, and it's it still drives me nuts that Ted continues to gain social currency uh, and being used as a meme, being used as an icon, being mean, uh, used as like an ideology. And I don't know if it's just kind of some edgy shit or something like that. I know that's that's how the whole meme thing works, but um, yeah, I mean, Ted sucks. He was, he, he, there's good things about Ted and there's really bad things about Ted and increasingly over time, there's a lot more bad things about Ted. Uh, and I, I think the ship of fools kind of stuff is exactly the problem. And the, the thing to remember about Kaczynski that I think gets overlooked a lot because he makes such a fucking big deal about who he's calling a leftist, uh, it's you know it's just like a diversion kind of technique. It's just kind of like a, a tool of negation, um, and it keeps him from realizing that Ted is thoroughly a leftist. Uh, what he sees as his target is a little bit different than what most leftists would, which is just technology. But he wants a revolution against technology. He quotes Mao all the time. His stuff like Ship of Fools, and he had some other shit too. About um, he had sent it to me before. I didn't print it. I was like, uh, "What if the Earth first had existed fifty years ago?" And it was like, he he does these little stories. I mean, he's he's a fucking awful writer. I'm sorry, Ted is a pathetic writer. Um, but he he has these stories about like a bunch of Earth firsters doing lockdowns during World War II instead of fighting the Nazis, and boom, the Nazis just take over. It's almost identical to ship of fools down to like pathetic dialogue and really, you know, borderline kind of racist names and tropes being involved in it. Um, but the idea is always kind of going to be this, 
this thing, this idea that he's presented, which is just like, well, if you're not looking at technology, then you're just going to let everything go by. That's the basis for his whole bullshit, the truth about primitive life thing that he put out. It was to try and say that anarcho primitivists misrepresent or need to misrepresent uh, hunter-gatherer life or life without civilization in a particularly leftist manner. Which is, is just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to articulate what he actually says. I don't believe any of it. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, but his whole idea was that if we, we need to present it to that to get people motivated and we're just distracting from everything else, we're just distracting from the issue of technology in doing so. So that's a real crime. So he wants to try and deflate it. And of course, the ways he does that is, you know, quite often lying, uh, misrepresentation, misuse of sources. Uh, or just, you know, not understanding the impacts of colonialism, which is going to happen if you think that trying to understand colonialism is going to keep you from a Maoist kind of revolution against technology. So he's got these really ideological tropes that he can never seem to get past. Uh, and, you know, I see people sometimes talk about the essay Ship of Fools, like, well, that's where Ted really laid it out. That's where Ted really nailed you. I was like... It's a fucking story. <laughs> I mean, like, how much credit can you really give it, and how much how much credence does it really hold? If you create a situation, uh, I'm not going to give you credit for how you think you've solved it. And also, you know, I'm, I'm going to read a few lines from it just so people can understand how much this sucks and how questionable Ted can be whenever he's trying to create these stories. Uh, so this is from Ship of Fools. This is not me, uh, and it is awful and i'm gonna and it says just ridiculous things but it goes to show it's like ted was a person who dropped out of his culture in the 60s uh and yeah he just didn't evolve in a lot of ways he didn't go with it he didn't grow with it he didn't understand any of the movements that came afterwards uh all those nuances just totally gone so this is a bit from ship of fools just so you know people can realize this is awful <laughs> people are referencing it as though it's great all right i have more reason to complain than anybody said an american indian sailor if the pale faces hadn't robbed me of my ancestral lands i wouldn't even be on the ship here among the icebergs and arctic winds i would just be paddling a canoe on a nice placid lake i deserve compensation at the very least the caption should let me run a crap game so i can make some money the bosun spoke up yesterday the first mate called me a fruit just because i suck cocks I have the right to suck cocks without being called names for it. So that's I, that's really all I need to read. I mean, it's just kind of fucking pathetic. Um, and I mean, every single way, tone deaf and ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, this is this is why. Like, when people are talking about Ted, it's like, oh, he's a Unabomber, you know, he injured 26 people or whatever. He killed three or four. And yeah, there's something to it. It's like, you know, I mean, there's, there's something to everybody, but it doesn't mean you give credit for it forever it doesn't mean that you need to give them space or make space for them or just imagine because they created a scenario that was horribly atrociously written uh that you need to give credit to that critique or, or to give it space uh and in the case of ted in the case of uh a lot of the shit that just isn't the case um uh, but I, I bring this up and i i'm more wary of it because it is this 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 kind of wedge point becomes the way in which um, eco-fascists tend to kind of creep in. It's just this kind of reactionism uh, to 
what is perceived as, you know, leftist bickering or something like that. Uh, and kind of making this call to say that you should be pretty singularly focused on one particular issue. And uh, so if we're not looking at civilization, if we're not looking at technology uh, or what people would perceive as civilization and technology, then we're just wasting our time. I mean, that's ridiculous. And one is one part of that is like, you know, technology is, is a crucial driver of civilization. I mean, indisputably, if we're talking about taking on civilization, if we're talking about attacking civilization, we're talking about the grid. We're talking about the, the systems of power and the means of distribution of power and just maintenance and everything about civilization comes down to technology. So yes, technology is a target. And that's the point of agreement that I had with Ted. But this idea that that means you need to focus solely on technology and you can't talk about any other issues is fucking absurd. And that's the thing about civilization is that it is a totality by nature. It is all-encompassing and just enveloping of, of every aspect of your life because that's how domestication needs to be. Uh, and I am a cultural materialist. I do believe that, you know, looking at technology, looking at material circumstances and looking at the flow of power and the ecology of states and the ecologies of systems is going to be how you undermine them. But those narratives really do matter. Those narratives are really important to the persistence and maintenance of power and how they all work. So the idea that we're not going to look at those narratives and not look at the way that civilization functions and not look at the way that it impacts it, aside from just saying, okay, civilization is destroying the earth, that's that, so we need to target technology. We need to undo and unpack so much about what it means to be human, so much about what it means to exist in this world that is just constantly at the precipice of total destruction, a point where ecologists feel more comfortable talking about the potential or the likelihood of uh, human extinction instead of realizing that we could do something beyond the political realm or political scale to take on civilization. But at no point is it contradictory. At no point is it cheapening or weakening anything about the critique or the momentum against civilization to say, we need to understand how it exists and how it functions in every single regard. Uh, and that's something that, you know, I think that's something that Eric Primitivism has always done. Uh, but again, it's something that we, we had been building on existing critiques from other anarchists and from other, you know, I mean, from the ultra left, from the post left, from leftism, uh, that had already existed. I mean, there was no, there was no question about it, whether or not we agreed with, with means and ends in terms of what anybody on the political spectrum was going to say or do about systemic inequality or systemic destruction. But it doesn't mean that those critiques just go away. It means that that's all part of it. If we're against civilization, we're against all of it. Against capitalism, we're against feudalism, we're against agriculture. All of these things get wrapped up into it, and it's extremely important Uh especially for arguing, especially for talking to people about the consequences of civilization to really be able to articulate and expand upon all of these different aspects. And I, it's, I mean, this is, this is the center of my work. This is the center of everything that I do. Uh, it's, you know, it's very clear what civilization is doing on this planet. It's very clear how technology drives that. What is less clear is all the ways that 
domestication and the domestication process has to creep in and undermine how we function in this world and how we see this world and how we see ourselves within this world. And that, to me, is extremely important to be uncovering. That's why I'm making such a focus. That's why I think it's, it's so absolutely vital. We have impacts on such an elemental level with this world. And you can think about stuff as, as crazy as the fact that uh, sharks had changed the routes that they had migrated and the routes that they had traveled along the Atlantic slave trade because the ships threw so many people overboard. Uh, so many bodies went overboard that they could eat. Uh, and you see the same kind of thing about the relationship of how uh, predators in Africa had changed their diet or had started to scavenge and hunt humans because all of these endemic civil wars had started to leave a lot of bodies behind and the building of fences just totally shifted uh, animal migrations and human migrations and reduced the sheer mass and the sheer quantity of animals by such a significant number and then created this political crisis that resulted in a lot of human bodies being left behind the behaviors had changed and once again you can see with rising ocean temperatures uh, on on virtually every single coast the locations of sharks and whales are changing uh, and that's why you're seeing more more shark attacks in some areas you're seeing more whale die-offs in others they're having to move to follow uh, you know the fish that they would hunt or the other animals that they might hunt or, or just to get out of certain waters and get into areas where where feeding becomes possible again and it means that a lot of things that hadn't been dealt with or a lot of things that hadn't been fully understood in terms of how these animals move and how they you know how commerce ships and how navy ships were impacting their lives was going to come into account and and that has resulted in even more die-offs so we're just just constantly creating these these catastrophic trophic cascades of impact and it happens within our lives it happens within the wild world it happens within every aspect ecologically sociologically psychologically every single aspect of our lives is being shifted constantly by domestication it means that we have to understand those patterns it means that having a critique of civilization and having a critique of understanding where power is doesn't change the fact that each one of these systems and each one of the forms that civilization currently takes or has taken it's it's not like rendering anything these things invalid it just means that we're seeing how these patterns shift and we're going to be able to understand better and predict how to deal with these patterns by looking at the entire picture instead of just by focusing on one point or another. So instead of just looking at capitalism, you know, how did feudalism work? How did communism work? How did socialism work? How did all these different productionist empires exist? And what is the core of how they were able to make it at all? Because every civilization, every, every one of these things is constantly fighting against our human nature, is constantly fighting against what it means for us to be a social animal, a functioning being in this world, and the need for community, and the need for wild community, and the need for taking part in your subsistence, and just all of these things are, are persistent needs that we have. And the only way this works is by forcing us into a different situation or by convincing us that we need to be buying into this entire mythos, buying into this entire narrative, buying into this entire lifestyle that we're being sold. And so that's why all these different diversions exist. And that's why all these different 
these tiers of hierarchy exist because that's how you get people going. So your manager, you know, isn't going to relate to your position at work. It's the exact same thing across the board. It's like the the entire idea of white privilege and uh, things like that. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of people who come out. Especially, it's been it's been really bad, really problematic, and the rewilding community in particular. Uh, you know, it becomes this kind of self defense mechanism. I think uh, where people just straight up deny white white supremacy. They straight up deny white privilege. And it's easy for white people to do that. And I'm speaking as a white person. Uh, you know, we are supposed to be the benefactors of these systems that have been evolving for a long time to create this kind of class, caste, tiered hierarchy that exists within civilization so that the people who are supposed to benefit from this system never actually have to see the consequences or deal with the repercussions of what it takes to maintain that order, what it takes to maintain that system. So of course we're going to deny it. Of course, of course we are. That's that's how it always works. We're not going to see it uh, because for the most part we just don't have to deal with it in the same way. It doesn't mean that life is always great or grand or easy, but it just means that systemically speaking, or uh, you have certain privileges or certain ways out, and you know we see that all the time. So that's becoming more important to focus on because that's you know the the core of how these alt-right, far-right groups and fascist groups and proto-fascist groups are really taking the rise. They're using technology to just build this defensive idea based off of identity and based off of identity politics and things like that uh, and just use fear to make it look like strength. And that's what civilizers have always done. This It's a persistent theme throughout the history of civilization. Very weak groups of people trying to present themselves as strong to control other people. And that's, you know, the history of civilization and the history of the civilization, particularly in the Americas has a lot of this, like, you know, the European uh, white mind kind of creating and sowing the seeds for its own, its own threats and its own potential demise. Uh, and if you look in the Americas, you know, you, you look at all these different places that were being colonized at the time, you know, it, it hadn't been articulated at the time, necessarily as white supremacy, although effectively it was exactly what it was. Uh, but, you know, just taking these situations where you're you're taking a very small group of white people and throwing them in the lands of people who are typically not white uh, and then saying you're going to colonize them. And then you look at the case of the Americas in general, like during the Atlantic slave trade, it was three Africans to every European being brought over here. Uh, just to get this massive exodus of people to to clear and work this land uh, requires a great deal of fucking slavery, uh, and that's just that's just the foundation of the system. But it's just another way of trying to keep the people in power, the white people and the Europeans, in this really vigilant, fearful position of they're always going to come for me. I was like, well, of course, if you create the system, if you create this situation, yet there are going to be repercussions for it. People are not going to just sit there and take it. And we've gotten to a state of society where, for the most part, we are in the first world just kind of sitting and taking it. We've just gotten used to that. And technology has made that easier and easier. Uh, but that that needs to be pointed out. That needs to be drawn out. That needs to be understood and contextualized. 
All the things that we are trained not to see are the things we need to be seeing. That applies to every single aspect of civilization. So I just think it's important to keep this in mind. Anytime you get presented with people being like, it's a ship of fools kind of situation where we're all or nothing. If we're not focused solely on technology, then we're just, we're, we're headed right for the iceberg. We're fucking heading for the iceberg anyways. That's, that's the direction this is going. But if you don't understand why we're not seeing the iceberg, then, yeah, I mean, all, all the reason in the world we're going to hit it. And the collapse of civilizations before, you know, there's, there's a number of ways that things go down. If we're going to say there's historical precedent, which there is, for how collapse moves forward and how collapse happens, this is, is part of it. This understanding of like you know social awakening, social arisings, and and revolt, uh, you know we're we're in uncharted territory whenever it comes to this massive climate change. It's not that it's never happened before, and I think Carl Sveen had a really good point. Uh, I really liked how he put it. Is like you know the Earth has existed at this level of carbon emissions uh, before, but civilizations have never never existed in those times, and they're they're just not going to. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, of forced migration because of agricultural failure, because of climate change, because of rising sea levels, because of food shortages, because of geopolitics offsetting and offshifting entire populations, we're going to keep coming up against these issues and it's going to keep creating this massive tension. And we can't just look at that stuff and act like it's just some diversion and act like child detention is something new or that it's going to be a problem that solves itself or a problem that's going to be voted away. This is what a collapsing civilization looks like. It looks like an amplification of every single method of inequality and unequal distribution of anything uh, that's going to maintain power, that's going to maintain the idea or the illusion that there is control. And it's going to do that in this, continue to do that in this, this very tiered system where you just have to keep convincing the people who have some degree of social power or social stability into thinking that everybody else is fucking crazy and they're just out to get your stuff. So that continues to be an issue. And that's really the baseline of this proto-fascist movement, this fascist movement that's, that has been on the rise. And it is based entirely off of fear. It's based entirely off of the idea that, you know, if you're a, a white person, particularly a white male, People are coming for your power. They're coming for you. Uh, and I wish that was true, but I I just, you know, this is, it's, it's just a story that's being told. It's a story that's always been told. And the more we understand about the, the part this plays and the part that we have in the, in the world around us and the history of civilization, the easier it's going to be to target and undermine this narrative and its functions in every single regard. And I think that's extremely important. So, you know, when it comes to the ship of fools analogy, just story, it's not even a good story. Uh, And yeah, I mean, there's, that's, that's the kind of thing about an allegory. You can kind of just make it work, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be true. And there's nothing about whatever Ted's talking about that, you know, he, he's spending his time writing about this stuff. He's spending his time talking about Erica Primus and their, their idealism. Okay. <laughs> so, so then what, what, where does that lead you? What does that, what does that do? How's that different than actually 
taking the time to do the actual research and find out about what's really going on and finding out about how colonialism and intergenerational trauma work and how they function and how the, the distancing that we have in our minds between ourselves and all other social animals, how all these things interplay and work together and how this maintains civilization. Uh, so yeah, I, all told, there's going to be more that's coming out on these things, but it's just something that I felt the need to address and for whatever reason it's been coming up more and more to me personally uh people asking these kind of questions uh but yeah no there's nothing about being against civilization and seeing this very massive target that means that everything that's underneath that umbrella everything that's underneath that massive issue that massive situation is less valid than the entire thing in itself. You cannot split these things out. It's like technology. You can't take the good and bad. It doesn't work that way. Um, These are all aspects of civilization. These are all aspects of understanding how domestication works. So, yeah. uh, The easy answer to a common question I've been getting lately is, do these things matter? Do I see white privilege as an issue? Do I see colonialism as an issue? Fuck yeah, I do are huge issues this is vital to understanding how civilization functions and vital hopefully to completely undermining and attacking it uh so that's where that's at and that's it's one of those things that will be covered up more uh when it comes to or if it comes down to having a primer faq and like i'll be expanding on that more but just had to get it out there in the meantime ted's a fucking awful writer so there's much better books out there if you're looking for things to read. So that's going to wrap that up for this episode. Uh, just a reminder, the website for all past episodes and all the information about the podcast and everything else is at primalanarchy.org. Uh, my personal webpage is kevintucker.org. Information about my books is on there. Uh, wildresistance.org is the journal, and the next issue focuses on decolonization and anti-civilization. Uh, the deadline for that is September 1st, so it is getting closer. Uh, Blackandgreenpress.org, other information about the books. Blackandgreenreview.org is where all the stores are, but if you go to any of those pages, then all the other ones are linked from it. So primalanarchy.org, kevintucker.org are pretty good starting points. Uh, You can always email me, blackandgreenreview, I'm sorry, blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. That's blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. And at those websites as well, uh, particularly the primalanarchy.org. There's information on how to support the podcast. Like I said, we have a, a pretty monumental debt load right now for Black and Green in general, so any help with that is greatly appreciated. Patreon, Venmo, PayPal, all those things are options as far as helping out. Um, and yeah, so I should have some, some news and some information on the second edition of Wallace and Anarchy very, very soon here. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'll do my best to try and get on some more podcasts as well. I'm going to do something a little bit different, though, this time. Uh, I'm going to have some music in the end. had a recent thread about anti-civ music and things like that. So I'm going to start out. Maybe I'll test it out. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, this first track that I'm going to put on here is going to be at the very end, so if you don't like it, you don't have to listen. Uh as my friend's band, Burning Empires, it's members of uh, Misery Signals, Seven Angels, Seven Plagues, and uh, and Andy Hurley on drums. 
very, very anti-sieve. So yeah, this track is from Hairs of the Soil uh, and it is called Emerging Primal. So I'm going to let that take it off now and also just mention that Primal Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Channel Zero Network, uh, which is Anarchist Podcasts. Uh, Channel Zero on almost all like social media and everything like that and you will find information. All right, until next time, thank you.